Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting this podcast over the past two years since we launched it in January of 2018. As you've probably noticed, we've been on a hiatus over the past several months, and during this time, the world has drastically changed in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest today is an incredibly accomplished professional and executive coach and thought leader who is here to talk with us about what leadership looks like in the wake of COVID-19. It is my pleasure to welcome Amy Barnard-Bond to the show. Amy is an executive coach, strategic advisor, and keynote speaker who specializes in accelerating the success of compliance and legal executives. A former Fortune Global 50 executive, her clients include Adobe, Gap, Lyft, Bank of the West, Beringer Engelheim, Chegg, and the Nature Conservancy. Amy previously shaped company culture and strategic initiatives as an executive at companies such as McKesson and Allianz. She has been described by Forbes as one of the top coaches for legal and compliance executives. Amy earned her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center and her BA in English from Tufts and is an active member of the California State Bar. A leadership columnist for Compliance Week and fellow at the Harvard Institute of Coaching, She is a guest lecturer at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and the University of San Diego School of Business. She has spoken to the alumni associations of Georgetown and Tufts University and presents frequently to associations such as the Conference Board and SHRM affiliates. She has been quoted in publications such as the San Francisco Chronicle, NBC's KCRA-TV, and various other regional and business publications. A lifelong diversity advocate, Amy testified in multiple legislative committees on the successful passage of California's SB 826, the first law in the U.S. requiring corporate boards to include women. It is my honor to welcome Amy Barnard-Bond to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited about our conversation, and we're going to just jump right into it. So, Amy, can you maybe start our conversation by talking a little bit about your background and just letting our listeners know how you got your start professionally and how your career evolved over time? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, the short answer is I'm a former Fortune Global 50 executive. I spent about 20 years as an executive and I'm now an executive coach and actually specialize in accelerating the success of legal and compliance executives and their teams. But that's not how I started. I am an attorney and I started out my career at Georgetown and um, did some nonprofit work and then went to work for a law firm. And what I found at the law firm, which was general litigation, so it was great background, Tina, for business. I did some employment litigation, I did some contracts, I did some general business, you know, real estate stuff. And that was super helpful. A little bit of transactional, very general. That's terrific. Yeah. And I did plaintiff and defense. I I remember at the time I graduated, it was a terrible time to graduate from law school. It was 1992. Oh, I graduated in 94. Yeah. You, it was worse for you. At at least by 94, (laughs) it started recovering a little bit. Wasn't it bad? It It was was terrible. 
oh God, it was just, there was nothing, right? And so you had to kind of hustle. And so I did not get into any of the fancy law firms, despite, you know, going to a good law school, doing well, getting honors, whatever, it didn't matter. But it wound up being a blessing, I'll tell you, because I worked for a, a like 30 person litigation firm in a town I'd never heard of when I moved out to California. It's, it's quite a well-known suburb now and it's grown a lot, but I got to do plaintiff and defense. And that was really cool. Like I, I second shared a jury trial my second year out, which as you know, at a large firm, I wouldn't have seen the outside of the library, right? Or I might've gotten some law in motion. Yeah, that's pretty amazing experience. Yeah, so that was great. And I'll tell you, I learned I didn't like it, which was also a gift, you know, three and a half years in, right? Because until you get in the courtroom and you really get to practice, you don't really know what it's like to do litigation. So I got an early kind of experiment that, that, you know, I can't say it failed, right? But I learned, okay, not the direction I want to go. And what I found is I didn't like being stuck with the facts. I had, you know, oftentimes, right, bad facts. And you think, why did they handle it this way? Why didn't they just act a little more fully terminated that person? Or why didn't they do a better investigation? Again, I, I wound up specializing a little bit more in employment litigation, Tina. So that's why this was important. So I didn't have enough experience, to, I've learned, to get an in-house job as the employment lawyer. So I took a year off and traveled in Asia and tried to figure out what I was going to do. It was, it was, um, it was kind of a, a difficult time, actually, because I'd always been such a go-getter, type A, never had a break in my resume. It, it was a big leap for me, but it was a wonderful thing to do. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. It was a good time in life to do it. And I wound up doing some career counseling and went into HR, took a big pay cut, you know, took some prestige cut, which was a, a good ego lesson, um, not to be too tied <laughs> to title, I would say. Because I remember going out for drinks and people were like, oh, what do you do? And I, and I used to say, oh, I'm an attorney, you know, at the law firm. I'd be like, I'm, I'm in HR. And they'd be like, oh, because a lot of people don't like HR people, unfortunately. And so <laughs> they've had a bad experience. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting learning, you know, for me about HR and how I wanted to change the profession. And I wound up working for, I had to convince a small environmental consulting company to actually let me work as an HR person. I'll never forget one of my interviews at, at a very large Fortune 500 retail company. I went in for the interview and the guy said, I thought it was going great. And, and, but then in the middle of the interview, he just stopped and looked at me and he said, you know, you've been an attorney. Do you realize in HR, you actually have to get along with people? <laughs> and I learned he had a horrible experience with litigation. And I thought, well, I'm not getting this job. So I had to bury my law degree, actually, my resume. When I started reinterviewing, then I got a job in HR. I wound up then getting recruited for Fireman's Fund, Allianz, which I loved. And I, I wound up working there for 11 years in corporate. Wow. And I learned all these other skills like project management, corporate communications. I wound up, I was working at the, as the HR business partner for the general counsel's office at Fireman's Fund. And she wound up being a huge sponsor for me. We're still friends to this day. She's an amazing woman. One of the best leaders I ever worked for. And I really learned management skills mm -hmm. from that. Um, and then went into corporate HR, did project management, and then was asked when we had business cutbacks, we hit a really bad you know, financial curve in the business. And I was asked to come back to the general counsel's office to head up the compliance and ethics program to build an ethics program there, which was an amazing opportunity. And I loved that. And then we hit another tough 
curve financially and the company was shrinking and I realized I, I needed to leave, which was a tough decision, but really a, a good one. And I jumped to healthcare, huge learning curve had an amazing opportunity to walk on to my first executive team at uh, McKesson, U.S. Pharmaceutical, and again, build the compliance and ethics program there. Learned a whole bunch of stuff, data privacy, government contracting, healthcare fraud and abuse, records management, you know, all kinds of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, all kinds of stuff that's important for a global company. I worked there for about five years, and it was amazing. I got to build a team from scratch do cross-functional project team. But then I also found I was kind of burned out. I had my two daughters had, I'd missed some birthdays. I, I had, um, was starting to feel it. And so I took a planned sabbatical. I gave plenty of notice. I helped recruit my successor. I tied everything up with a bow. And then I, I took six months off and I, I taught law school in the mission at a school in San Francisco at Golden Gate Law School, which was super fun. Gave me something to kind of do. And and then I spent more time on work life for about six months and then tried to decide whether to start my own thing or, or go back in house. And right when I was deciding whether to start my own business, I got recruited away by by a headhunting firm to come out to Sacramento to be the chief administrative officer of the California General Association. Oh, wow. And that was a really cool opportunity, Tina, because I wasn't having to choose between being a lawyer or an HR person. I had everything. I had IT, I had project management, I had legal compliance, HR, it was communications. It was super fun to have kind of the whole strategy and to really help drive workplace culture and build that. So I did that for a couple of years and then decided to go out on my own and do coaching and consulting for companies. I kind of missed the big corporate structure and the ability to, to leave large change projects and to, to help other attorneys and compliance people and HR and, and some other functions be really effective on leadership teams and, and improve their leadership. And so that's what I do now. And I just love it. And how long have you been doing that? It's been about three years. I, I went back to, to graduate school. I got my certification. I then had another brief stint as a chief human resources officer at a publicly traded bank uh, here in Sacramento. And then I've done some other attorney type stuff. I think we've talked, I, I um, testified for the women on boards bill here in Sacramento. And that was fun to be involved with, with that. Cause I do a lot of board governance and, and uh, work with boards of directors mm-hmm. and healthy, healthy governance, risk prevention, you know, ethical culture, that, that kind of thing. And then I did, I was an expert witness on a really interesting theft of trade secrets case for, for business ethics. It was really fascinating for a global pharma company. So sometimes it, co- it still comes in handy, but most of the time I'm, I'm helping on a strategy level and leadership level with teams and individual clients and companies often hire me to help with maybe a derailer that's coming up for, for someone that they want to promote or they mm-hmm. want to bring into the C-suite or that they've hired externally and maybe having a challenge acclimating to the corporate culture. Very interesting. So that, I mean, you've got an amazing background and I'm just so excited about our conversation today. You are my first conversation in the context of this podcast since the onset of COVID. And we are talking about leadership in the context of of COVID. And so let's set the context for our listeners about where we are in the midst of this awful pandemic. It has now been nearly 10 weeks since many states started instituting shelter in place, and we are now well into spring with the summer coming upon us quickly. 
from your perspective in your work with clients and given what you're seeing both as a professional as well as a person living in this environment, where are people that you are working with right now, professionally as well as personally, in dealing with this awful pandemic? I'd say it's a time where people are either thriving or they're having a really tough time. And there are so many reasons for that, Tina, right? There's the personal level with, you know, I've had friends who've had parents pass away during this time and they've had to figure out how are they going to handle the, the tactical, the, the practicalities of handling an estate, maybe not being able to be there not being able to have a proper memorial and then how do they grieve? So that I think is the hardest that I, that I've coached through. Then we've got parents who are working parents who have no childcare um, and are trying to play it safe and not have anyone at their house to, to do that. So that that's challenging. And then from a work standpoint, some businesses are thriving as is always the case, right? In a huge disruption like this, some some industries are doing okay, but most are hurting. And so that has immediate impacts for people on their working lives. There have been most of the clients I coach are handling furloughs or across the board pay cuts or layoffs or really having to take a hard look at what their goals were and just completely set them aside and create an entirely new set of goals that changes, if not daily, on a weekly basis, for example, are they going to try to reboard? What does the return to work look like? Does everyone have enough technology to be able to work from home? Manufacturing, of course, is, is one of the most challenging and uh, because they need to ideally still keep people on the line. And that's the greatest risk. I was reading about the, the meat industry the other day, for example, right? And that's one of the highest risk areas for transmission. So those are some of the things that, that I've observed. Well, and you're absolutely right. And it's just, we're a record on employment, lots of conversation about and comparisons to the depression. And just while there are certain statistics that we're seeing right now, and there's discussion among certain states, um, Wisconsin was a big one for us here in the Midwest in the last several days, opening up in a much more meaningful way than some other places, but Chicago, for example, I'm not so convinced that we're going to be opening up in a meaningful way anytime soon. So it it just continues to be a very uncertain time. And with unemployment being at record highs and with many people focusing on just survival at this point, let's talk about leadership and why it's so important, particularly in an environment of so much uncertainty and why the role of a leader is so important at this time and what roles do leaders play at this at, at this juncture they play a critical role uh, it's it's so important especially in times of uncertainty because decisions have to be made quickly and often with less information than we might like because employees our customers, our our partners, our vendors want to know what our company's position is going to be or our action. Are we going to continue with contracts that we've had? Are we going to move forward with that deal? I coach some people doing M&A and that's that's really tough right now because sometimes the cash has evaporated, right? 
right. um, the, predict, the predictability of, the, of what you thought it was maybe a good first quarter and then what's happened since and then trying to project into the future, third quarter, fourth quarter, based on where you are in the business cycle. So I find that leaders have to confront topics and actions that other people really may feel powerless or afraid to face. And leadership must evolve with the business cycle. There's always some crisis along the path with business. You know, Airbnb is a good example of of an extremely successful company that had their entire business model affected by this pandemic. They were just going great guns, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then suddenly, boom, you know, people aren't going anywhere. So I would say it's important for leaders to have a decision-making model that's really focused on the long term. It's very easy to let fear drive short-term decisions right now in a panic. And so as an executive team, I would say that a couple of the skills that are really critical right now is number one, think through your decision-making model. And if you didn't have one, design one now that makes sense for your business and the size of your team and the size of your, your employee workforce. And then second, as, as an team, you really need to get good at productive conflict, which is you know, working collaboratively through decisions to surface the best ideas, the risks of each course of action that you're thinking about so that you can move forward decisively as a team in spite of that limited information. And the other important thing, which is always important as leaders, but I think even more important in a crisis is to present a unified front when you make that final decision, you hash it out hopefully behind closed doors. You may not have agreed with it, but when you leave the room, you support the decision because I think there's nothing, nothing worse in general, but particularly when people are already fearful and really need to feel secure that their leadership is looking out for everyone's best interests. Mm-hmm. They need to present a unified front to employees so they inspire trust and don't feed that fear monster. I, I completely agree with everything you've said and you've offered some tremendous insight. I think when you have a leadership team, I don't think you want everybody to be from the same background. I think you need to have rational discourse. You have to be willing to disagree and you have to be willing to hash things out. But I also completely agree that once a decision is made and you have to implement it and you are going in front of the folks that you lead, that you have to present a unified front because having any sort of perception of there being any discord among the leadership team can be incredibly detrimental to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And what I find right now, and I think now that we're moving into, at least here in California, it's, it's week, it was week nine yesterday was our nine week anniversary of, of staying in place. It's getting really exhausting. I think even the most resilient among us were okay with probably the first eight weeks, but I'm, I'm really getting some notes from clients and other colleagues in my network that what feels like perhaps a second phase is exhausting. And so being able to recharge and talk about that and help each other out is, I think we're moving into a phase where, where that support is really important. This, you know, the, the, the VUCA cycle, I don't know if you talked about this on one of your podcasts with the velocity, you know, the, the, the velocity of change is, has happened so much more quickly. And so we've been working up to this for a decade, but this pandemic has put it into overdrive before most organizations have had a chance to evolve their decision-making capabilities to be able to keep up with that fast pace of decision-making and get everybody's voice out on the table, right? Not just have only one person making the decision, uh, which isn't usually the, the best brain trust. 
way to do it. So, you know, you've done a great job of sort of encapsulating what leadership looks like and needs to look like in the context of uncertainty. What does leadership often look like when it's a booming economy and when there's an upturn? Well, there's more hiring, there's more energy, there's more budget. People can make calculated bets in growth, which is exciting. I've worked in companies in all different cycles, and there's, there's really nothing more fun than working in a growth cycle. You can brainstorm about exciting things to, to build and do in new markets to get into. I'd say on the flip side, though, having constraints now can also lead to immense creativity and innovation. So I am an optimist, and I do think that despite the fact that we're not necessarily in, in that growth mode yet, that we will get there. But in the meantime, I do think we're going, we're going to see some opportunities. You know, we, I think it was Satya Nadella, of, the CEO of Microsoft, recently said that the, the tech shifts that have taken place normally in the last two months normally would have taken two years to accomplish. And for a lot wow. of people who have been begging to work from home, um, they've got their chance now. You know, and so a lot of us are saying, well, do we like it? Does it work for us? Do we miss it? And I've heard a number of people who have said, you know, I would love to be in the office two days a week. And they're probably going to get their wish because the reboarding plans that, that I'm aware of from some clients in, in Hong Kong, for example, I was talking to a friend last night and they're starting to reboard. And the return plan, both for schools, her, her kids are going to be going to school Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so that they can, and the other kids are going Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, so that they can have social distancing in the classroom. You know, restaurants are talking about the same thing. I think workspaces are talking about the same thing. My husband works for the California state unemployment, which you can imagine has been going gangbusters. So he's been working yeah. double time to get those employment unemployment checks out to people. And they're talking about the same thing. So it's going to be interesting. Well, and I was talking to a friend yesterday, actually, about how some companies have already made the decision that folks can work remotely through the end of the year. I believe Twitter announced a few days ago that folks can work remotely going forward permanently. I don't know if they're going to go, if they're migrating to a completely remote work environment, I think that might be the case. And so the landscape is, is completely shifting and what, you know, in terms of working, in terms of living, I think we're going to see some interesting phenomenon in terms of people moving out of cities especially if they're able to work remotely. Um, you've got the folks that always love to be in the city and will live in the city regardless of whether they're working remotely or not. But I think we're going to see some interesting fluctuations and shifts in terms of where people choose to live. So given all of that and how everything is shifting and moving and evolving at rapid speed, what does great leadership look like in this environment? Maybe we should start by looking at what it looks like from the context of the employees who work for these organizations? Very important. I would say great leadership to an employee right now, number one, looks like safety. And then the second thing I would say is purpose. I I think both of these two baseline human needs are under intense scrutiny right now by everyone who is working. Safety is a, is a gating device. And I don't think we've ever had so much focus 
on personal safety unless you happen to work in an environment like like your police officer or your physician that deals with sick patients all the time, right? Most of us have not had to worry about being safe, you know, going into our office. And it's a primary focus right now. So I'd say there's been a huge shift. I think that we had had been in a in a way, in a golden age, at least for the the privileged executives that I work for, they were often thinking about self-actualization. What do I need to do to be happy? How can I be happier? How can I have a better work-life balance? How can I knock it out of the park in my business and just have the best life possible? And those higher needs right now, I would say have have taken a backseat to safety for people who just now really want to put food on the table and save the business. Well, and then safety means a number of things. I mean, safety means physical safety. Like, am I going to be endangering my life potentially by going into work? And then there's also safety from the context of, is my job safe? Is my livelihood safe? Is my ability to provide for my family intact? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if you take care of, of safety, what I've, what I've found with, with my companies who are doing a great job at the safety part, to your point, both in a physical sense, Tina, and also in a financial sense, the next thing gets to purpose. Do we still feel a sense of purpose? Has that changed? You know, with, with the immense changes that have been wrought by this pandemic, I think for leaders, it's never been more important. Once you've addressed safety, to, to get on to purpose for your team. Sometimes, you know, there are a lot of people who need to be together physically. We're, we're all a little different, but there's always going to be some people on your team that prefer the physical, you know, getting together, the drive-bys, water cooler, going to lunch, that kind of thing. So those people really need the outreach. And, and then for teams in general, some teams purpose has been permanently disrupted. And so I think to get people engaged and committed and to inspire, it's really the role of leaders to think about and to be very sensitive to how their teams are feeling, you know, in, in their team meetings. I'm going to make the assumption that, that most people on this call have regular team meetings and have one-on-ones with their employees, which if they're not doing it before, they really should be doing it now because it's really important to check in and see if people are having a void because they need, they need meaning. Well, and that's a really great point. And I think that the way that we look at community, the way we look at connecting with people has meaningfully shifted over the past couple of months. Video conferencing is one way to do it. um, And I think has been, at least for my organization and my connections to clients, sometimes emailing or being on the phone with them is enough. But I have found that a lot of people really find video conferencing to be an effective way to stay as connected as you possibly can. And, and frankly, I've, I've watched more people have video conferences where maybe pre-COVID, they would have just settled for a telephone conversation. And so I agree with you completely that it's all about creating community and with that comes creating purpose and making sure that there continues to be alignment along the, the, the lines of making sure that purposes align and realizing that people's own internal compass and sense of purpose, I think, has definitely shifted in, in some shape or form over the past few weeks and just making sure that people stay 
connected and tuned into that. Yeah. And, and I think it's one question that I've worked with on my clients is who do you want to be in a, when COVID leaves the room? You know, what, what is your setup? What are you, what are you prepping for? How, how is, how are you showing up now and how do you want to be? And what's your company culture going to be like once we come out of this and how can, what actions can you take now to lay that groundwork for where you want to be? And that's a critical question. And I think it's one we, I've done a lot of work with executive coaches over the years, and that's always a question that we ask ourselves. It's always that check-in that you're supposed to do periodically. But I think a lot of people are thinking it very carefully. And I think we're going to see a lot of meaningful shifts as communities, as organizations, as well as as people, um, as we start slowly emerging from this. Our time is going by really quickly. And there's another (laughs) facet to this great leadership question that I wanted to ask you. And that is, what does great leadership look like in the context of external stakeholders? I would say communication is, is paramount. You know, a lot of people are having to make hard calls right now. They're having to cancel contracts, decide whether to issue refunds. I don't know any any business or especially nonprofits are really dealing with this. So I think communicating with them and then outreaching, delivering bad news is is becoming an important skill for a lot of organizations with their external stakeholders, whether it's not meeting their financial targets, whether it is again not moving forward with something and how you're going to handle that. And again, I would encourage people to to the extent that that they're financially able to, to look at the long term. We've seen some heroes and zeros on this already. I would, I would say uh, you may have a good example out, out your Tina, but just some companies are making short-term decisions with external stakeholders that they're going to lose brand value. They're going to lose loyalty. And so that, that needs to be balanced with the sustainability. And I think, and, and the financial structure of the organization also for risk you know i coach a lot of compliance officers and and general counsel and that's a tricky game right now too in terms of when everyone's being expected to cut costs where do you cut with risk especially when there is messaging going out from sales to save the company at all costs so for global businesses that that message really needs to be balanced with and do the right thing. Don't, right. don't cut corners, don't bribe, don't, right? Um, that kind of thing. And so I, I, we've, we've crafted, uh, helped with strategic communication plans around making sure that people are thinking sustainably around profit and not just short-term because while the regulatory may have taken a back seat right now uh, in terms of government enforcement priorities, it does come back. <laughs> they don't. They don't forgive that later on uh, right. when things are good. You know, two or three years from now, right? So people need to be thinking uh, long term and not taking not taking the not taking the bad shortcuts. Yes, it's um, it's a very delicate balance, and obviously something that from one business to the next, and really in this environment, from one week to the next, is it, it can be you can strike that balance quite differently. And it's where that's really, it it sort of makes or breaks an organization is the leadership team's ability to 
navigate and just to keep the keep the organization steady through what has been some very choppy waters. So as we wind down the first part of our conversation, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? Oh, thanks, Tina. Well, I would encourage people to act from a place of strength and to cultivate their leadership presence. And I know that's easier said than done, but it's really important to boss back fear. I'd say that the ability to remain calm and clear-headed right now while others are panicking or potentially behaving badly, you know, really inspires confidence in you as a leader. And we just need more and more and more of that right now. And to do that, I would say, take care of yourself. You and I've talked about some of the, and I think you had a wonderful podcast previously on um, the importance of, of, you know, attorneys and, and business leaders taking care of their health. And so committing to a personal strategy for refreshing your energy reserve through self-care is really important. Like for me, I, I get up, make sure I move between meetings. I take a lunch break with my kids. I, I listen to some of my favorite music sometimes when I'm writing or doing content creation or looking at longer term. So it's important to set healthy limits. You could be on Zoom all day right now, right? It can. And I think we are, on. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can. And so, and, and sometimes actually Zoom is great, but I've also learned even in my coaching practice, sometimes being on the phone occasionally can feel more intimate and it's not as exhausting as having to manage your, your executive presence visually. So right. unless it's a board, board meeting or a team meeting or an executive team meeting, if it's a one-on-one, I would encourage people to sometimes split that up as part of your day. And it's amazing. Um, it's a different kind of connection and it won't, it'll, it'll keep a little bit of that energy reserve. So um, in terms of finding me, I'm pretty easy to find. You can uh, email me at amy, which is A-M-I-I at barnarbon.com. And I have a lot of leadership resources on my website that are, that are free and would love to hear from people. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, all the places on, on social media, pretty easy to, to find. You can just search my first name actually, because it's spelled unusually. It makes it pretty easy for me to find. Well, I've really enjoyed the first part of our conversation and I can't wait to dive into the second part. Great. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed the first installment of our conversation with Amy Barnard-Bond. We hope that you will join us next week for continuing the conversation. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.